We are finishing up the book of Habakkuk today, for real this week. I told you we were finishing up last week, and then I only made it through point one of three points. Um, So for real this time. And we are in chapter three. And the cool thing about chapter three is that chapter three, the whole chapter is a song. It's a worship song. And so we had some fun last week. We pulled out a stringed instrument and uh, sang a few songs that you guys knew. And that was kind of fun. Um, But I thought because we saw how powerful music is to help anchor truth in our hearts and how music can inspire us in times, music can help us through hard times, um, I thought I would just start out by asking you, does anybody have a favorite song that helps you through a long road trip? Anybody? Come on, you got to shout it out. (laughs) You got it. All right, anybody else? Come on. This is church. It doesn't have to be a church song, okay? Let me just say that. Horse with no name. name. All right. Uh, Maybe one in the last 40 years. Um, (laughs) Anybody? 500 miles. I would walk five. Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) Somebody else. Come on, shout one out. All right, you're shy. I like, anytime I'm somewhere warm, it's Bob Marley. I love, yeah. Just reminds me when I lived on the Baja and, uh, you know, cruising around in my old 1985 pickup truck. So anyway, um, yeah, road trip songs or Joshua Tree. Anything, like you just put on YouTube, Joshua Tree. Anybody else? The whole album, exactly. That's like road trip, isn't it? Yes. 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 In fact, I was somewhere warm not too long ago, and I had some Jimmy Buffett on. It just seemed appropriate. Road trips. How about, how about this? How many of you, does anybody have a song that kind of helped you through a hard season? Some hard years or, or a hard season of life? This might be a little harder. Anybody? Oceans, yeah. I will call upon your name. Keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise. How does the rest of it go? You don't remember either. <laughs> I am yours, you are mine. That's powerful, isn't it? Anybody else have a song that kind of helped you through a season? Just as I am. Just as I am. Yeah, Lord, it's nothing that I've done. It's just because of your grace, right? Songs help us through a tough time, right? So I thought we'd get into the passage today in Habakkuk via a cool story from Acts, from the Apostle Paul, that involves a song. Um, Paul and his, his, his buddy Silas are traveling together, they're ministering together, and they're on the way somewhere, and they're in this, this little town, and there's a young girl there, um, probably teenager, we guess, that was, actually had a demon. And if you have questions about that, or you know, does the demonic realm exist, catch me later, I'll tell you some crazy stories. But let me just say, she had a demon, and this demon allowed her to basically um, tell people's fortunes, as you read the, uh, the account here. And so she kind of was a fortune teller, and her masters, because she was a slave girl, her masters made a lot of money off of this young girl and this unique, quote-unquote, talent that she had that was actually a demonic thing, right? And so she, this, it's kind of, it's a amusing story at the beginning in a way because, you know, you see people like Jesus had compassion on people. Um, demons would rise up. Sometimes demons would, Jesus would rebuke demons, right? Um, in this account, Paul is going around and this girl just keeps following Paul and Silas around yelling out, 
These are our servants of the Most High. They're telling you the way to be saved, which you think would be a good thing to announce, right? <laughs> Except she just keeps doing it and won't shut up. And finally, Paul gets so annoyed that he turns around and he looks at her and he rebukes the demon. He says, come out in the name of Jesus Christ. And the demon comes out and all of a sudden, this girl can no longer, no longer has this talent anymore and her master's get ticked off. I think it's hilarious that Paul just got so annoyed that finally he like turns around and casts the demon out of this girl. But her masters were really angry. And so they hauled these guys in front of the magistrate. They worked up the crowd against them. And before you know it, uh, they're throwing them in jail. But before they do, check this circumstance out because this what was kind of a funny start to the story. It didn't get funny now. Verse, uh, I'm going to just pick up in verse 22 of Acts 16. It says this, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. They get a severe, brutal beating. We'll find out a little later. We won't read it, but that they had like open wounds. This was, they were beaten hard. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, this is the part that caught my attention. Check this out. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. What? How many of you think you would be praying and singing hymns to God? at midnight after you were nursing open wounds and being beaten. You get the sense that they, in spite of the circumstance they're in, they're rejoicing in God. How do you do that? How does that happen? And I'm like, I wonder what they were singing. Maybe like Psalm 23, because you know, like all the Psalms, those were songs. Poems put to music. We probably know someone, right? The Lord's my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for he is with me. Maybe that's what they were singing. Or maybe uh, something similar. You know that one song? Uh, we don't really sing it around here, but I've heard it. There's power in the name of Jesus. You've heard that one? To break every chain, break every chain. I think they were singing that one because of what happens next. And it's really a cool ending to the story because... At midnight, as they're singing, as they're praying, there's an earthquake under the prison. The chains fall off of them. This is supernatural. This isn't just a natural earthquake. The chains fall off of them. The guard comes down. He sees the prison doors wide open, and he's getting ready to do himself in because in that culture, if, if you don't you know, fulfill your job, that's what happens regardless of whose fault it is. And so he's getting ready to do himself in, and Paul and Silas go, stop, wait, we're all here. And then it happens that this guy is so amazed at, at what has happened, he goes, tell me what I must do to be saved, the prison guard. And that night, the jailer and his household believe in Jesus and are baptized. I mean, it's like the ultimate cool ending story, right? But Paul and Silas at midnight, they don't know the end of this story, do they? They're rejoicing and singing in a circumstance that is pretty bleak right now as they're in pain locked up in jail, rejoicing. They didn't know the ending, yet they prayed. They sang in chains, right? 
And it, it, it raised up faith in their hearts. It encouraged them. It somehow gave them joy in spite of their circumstances, in spite of their pain. And that brings us to Habakkuk chapter 3, to this amazing song of worship that God inspires Habakkuk to write for his people who are about ready to go through a really intense, brutal trial. If you have your Bibles, you can pick up, we're going to pick it up where uh, we're going to read the course of this song, because we said this is structured like a song, so you have the course that starts the song, and then three stanzas or three verses of the song, they're each marked in the uh, original text by a, a little term called selah, which is like an exclamation point, and it would show them where the verses of the songs are, and then they'd go back, they'd repeat the course, kind of like we do in, in songs, right? And then you'll have a bridge that'll bring the song home towards the end of the song. And so here's the course. Here's the course that God gives him. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And last week, the one thing we got to and we told lots of stories of things God had done was this. Remember, remember, remember what God has done. Remember where he's taken you. Remember what's come before. Remember the awesome things he's done in scripture. Remember your salvation. Remember what Jesus did. Stories, if you don't have your own stories, it's, it's that you don't have your own stories yet. Keep following him. Keep seeking him. Reach out to people around you. That's what the body of Christ is for, to encourage one another with incredible stories, part of it, of what God has done in our lives. And we encourage each other so that when we're going through rough times, we remember that God is powerful. God is active. God is sovereign, right? He's, he's above. He's in control. And so we saw you got to remember, and there's this righteous longing in all of us as we remember what God has done to see God move again powerfully in our day, in our time, to see revival in our time to see God move on our behalf, right? And so this song is both a song of worship and about praise and a song about creating hope. And in, Because in difficult times when God's power isn't obvious, the people are going to rely on this song and songs like it in the Psalms to remember and, and find faith and trust in God. Why do they need to remember? Well, just to remind you real quick, if you're just joining us here for the first week or the first week in a while in this series, they need to remember because as, as the book started, as Habakkuk looks around at the culture that's full of wickedness, injustice, God's people not acting at all like God's people, he, he asks God, he says, God, how long? How long do we, are you going to just keep putting up with this? Aren't you going to do anything about this? And God comes back and goes, oh, I'm going to do something. It'll blow your mind something you wouldn't believe even if you were told. I'm actually raising up the Babylonians as the agents of my discipline, which does blow Habakkuk's mind. And he's like, what? That's not fair. They're way more wicked than we are. He says, what? how do you put up with that, God? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? How is that fair? How is that fair? And the, the major things... Habakkuk's wrestling with in this book are that God doesn't seem to care, that God could act. Habakkuk knows that. God, you could act in this circumstance, but you're not acting. And then, God, you don't, it doesn't seem like you're fair. How come the, 
how come people I know that love God with all their hearts, their lives are following, falling apart. And over here, there's these people, they don't give a rip about God, don't live their lives for God at all. It seems like everything's working out for them. Doesn't seem fair, God. And I think these are things we can identify with. These are conversations we, can, we identify with as we look at circumstance. Circumstances in our life, right? If we're honest in life, this is where we often live. I have conversations all the time, and there's some really tough, difficult stuff. We've had some, some families, a family in the church that extended relative. They, they lost a six-year-old girl. Freak accident. How, how do you deal with that? How do you go, God, are you, how do you just hold that, right? What do you do with that? And that's what Habakkuk's dealing with here. And so God inspires and gives him this song that's a model for renewing and maintaining hope in the face of, of difficult circumstances. And so last week we looked at the two first two ver- verses or stanzas of this song. And we saw it was all about remembering the awesome, powerful ways God had redeemed them. He'd, used, he'd split the seas. He used weather on their behalf, all sorts of things. That God is powerful and God is outside of creation and creation submits to him. It's remembering that, God, you're in control. You're the one with the might and the power. So as they face this tough circumstance, they would remember that. Third verse, third stanza of the song. We're going to pick it up in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 13. says this, You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Salah. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And here's what Habakkuk is doing in this third stanza. Remember, this is poetic language. This is music. This is song language, right? He writes these lyrics that would remind them of well-known themes from Psalms and Job, where the depths of the seas are tied to evil and tied to chaos, Rahab and Leviathan. And what this is doing is it reminds people that God is the one who prevails over evil. He will prevail over evil. God is victorious. His people will ultimately be saved and rescued. The powers of evil do not prevail in the end. And that's a powerful thing to be reminded of, isn't it? That evil will not prevail in the end. It may look right now like evil is prevailing, but evil will not prevail in the end. And they'll need to remember this because they're about to go through a time uh, where they're looking at circumstances and just crying out, where are you, God? Where are you in the midst of my circumstance? The New Testament writers would pick up on this theme and themes like this, and they'll be reminded and inspired of what Jesus accomplished to defeat the powers of evil through his death and resurrection. It's like that worship song we sing, death is defeated, the king is alive. And as we're reminded that through Jesus' death and resurrection, what appeared as a defeat in the eyes of the enemy, in the eyes of the world, Jesus' death was actually the victory as he paid for our sins and the sin of the world. And then he was raised to life again, ultimate victory over the powers of evil. And what we know is that the ultimate eradication of evil will come when his kingdom comes in fullness 
at his return. That's our hope as followers of Jesus, right? Death is defeated. The king is alive. And because of that, everything's different. And that actually, that truth, the truth that he's coming again, that he's coming for us, that we will be with him. We will spend eternity with him. We will see our loved ones again. That's what gives us strength to hope when things look very dark, isn't it? And so this verse 3 reminds us, evil is not the final word. Chaos, destruction is not the final word. God will be victorious. And then they repeat the chorus. I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In wrath, remember mercy. Even as the judgment of Babylon comes, Lord, be merciful like you've been all along as we look back at our history. Even in discipline, you were always merciful. Lord, you always had mercy on individual people who cried out to you even as nations rise and fall. There's mercy available for you. There's always grace and mercy available in your time of need. That's a promise that we see in the New Testament. There are things that are not promised that life will always be easy. Uh, show me that one. <laughs> and if you're li listening to a preacher who's trying to tell you that, they're trying to sell you something. Let me just say that. Because pretty sure Jesus said in this life you will have trouble, right? But you are promised grace and mercy in your time of need. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank. And now Habakkuk is going to move into the bridge of the song. This is the part that's really going to drive it home. This is, uh, you remember the song, we don't sing it very often anymore, but blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know that one, right? And they get to the, the, the bridge, and it's so powerful. And people sing it so cheerfully without stopping to think what they're actually singing. You give and take away, you give and take away. It's a quote from Job. Actually, I struggle a little bit with the lyric um, for two reasons. One was because as I look at Job, it was, um, it was actually Satan that was taking, Satan that was doing the destructive work. But you do have to wrestle with the fact that God allowed it, right? Got to admit, even as a pastor, that's a hard book for me. I mean, I can you know, wrap my head around it theologically, but still on an emotional level, it's hard. Like, God, really? But why? I don't get it. I don't understand. Yeah, it worked out great for Job, but what about his kids? I struggle with some of those things sometimes, right? In fact, I've had a hard time. I remember a season where I had a hard time singing or leading this song because I had little kids, and I thought it was so hard for me. But the truth is, the thing we need to realize in what helps us get through life is the reality that anything, anything we treasure in this life could be gone in an instant. Life itself could be gone in an instant. We don't like to think like that. We don't get up in the morning thinking like that. But it helps anchor us in the reality of life. And all you got to do is talk to a few people or hear a few stories, and you're reminded of that. And so he comes to the bridge of the song in verse 16 where he's going to drive it home. Here's what it says. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. 
decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So first in the song, we remember. We remember what God has done. And now as he's bringing the song to a close, um, he's going to acknowledge. He's going to acknowledge. If you want to take notes, write down acknowledge. He's going to come to terms with what God has actually spoken. Going to come to terms with reality. Acknowledge that this is reality. This is the way it is. And this is a really important thing for followers of Jesus, that we would not be people who have our heads in the sand. You know where that expression comes from, right? Ostriches. And they bury their head in the sand. It's pretty hard to see what's the reality of what's going on around you with your head in the sand, isn't it? And a lot of Christians have their heads in the sand, which is denying the reality of a situation. Maybe that's um, when a diagnosis or a phone call from a doctor comes and they're like, no, no, no. And I have faith that's just not so. Or maybe that's when a relationship is going south and one of the spouses is like, we got to work on this. And the other one's no, no, it's fine. It's going to be fine. Maybe it's in a in a relationship, a dating relationship, where you got people around you going, ah, are you sure about this? Are you sure about this? And it's just ignoring the reality. And you're like, no, no, it's all good. It's all fine. And the people that love you are going, whoa, time out. You're not seeing this. You got your head in the sand. It's vital that we would be people who acknowledge the reality. See, here's what I think a better reference point for biblical faith is. Faith does not pretend the circumstance is okay. Faith trusts that God is sovereign over the circumstance. And that's a very, very critical difference. Faith isn't like, no, no, it's going to be fine. Faith is like, God, this is very serious. And unless you do something about this, it's going to be serious. That's a better definition of biblical faith. Um, A great example of this is in the book of Daniel. Remember Shad, Mish, and Abe? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Remember those guys? And they refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. And so he hauls them in front. He's angry, this great, powerful emperor who thinks he's God. Hauls them up in front of him and gives them one last chance. He's like, dudes, I like you guys. I don't want to do this, but I got this fiery furnace and we're cranking it up seven times as high. Come on, bow down. And they say the most profound thing. They say, we trust, we're going to only serve the one true God and honor and worship him. We're going to be faithful to our God, and we believe he can rescue us from your hand, and we think he will, we trust that he will, we have faith he will, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. And that kind of faith, even if he doesn't kind of faith, I think is what anchors a true sense of biblical faith. It's this idea that, God, you are sovereign over the circumstance. The circumstance is lousy. I believe you can move, and I believe you will. But even if you don't, I recognize you're God. I'm not God, right? Even if you don't, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. That's biblical faith right there. That's biblical faith. And part of not sticking your head in the sand is 
is not being fooled by something called sunk costs. Has anybody heard of that? Sunk costs. That's when you've invested so much into an enterprise or a business and it's failing and you think, well, I've got so much into it, I can't quit now. When in reality, everything that's sunk is sunk. It's gone. From this day on, what's the best course of action is the thing to ask, right? This is especially true. Let me just speak to younger people, particularly in the room. This is particularly true as you are um, you know, dating, trying to find someone to spend the rest of your life with. And there's wise people around you going, I don't know if this is really the right thing. And you've got your head in the sand. And part of the reason is because you've invested so much into this thing. I, I know this from experience. I had a long-distance relationship where I drove from here to Wyoming and back every week for a long time. Hours of phone calls. You know how it is. Long-distance dating. Oh. Anyway, I won't go there. <laughs> you hang up first. No, you hang up first. <clears throat> And ultimately, I got to the point after, after a long time, I was just like, I know this relationship isn't even what I want, but I just have so much invested into it. Now, don't hear me wrong. If you're married in the room, I'm not, I'm not saying you don't fight for your relationship because that's what we're told to do in Scripture, right? I'm talking specifically about dating relationships that aren't going where they should be going. Sometimes we stick our heads in the sand. Which brings another good question, I think, around this, around acknowledging what God is doing. Because in this circumstance, God tells Habakkuk what is happening. This is the declaration and the word of God. Babylon is coming. You can bank on it. In fact, he says, though, though it linger, wait for it, it's coming. It is going to happen. The word the Lord has spoken will happen. And so he acknowledges God, even though I don't like what you're doing, you have told me explicitly that this is what you're doing in this situation, so I'm going to acknowledge it. But how do you know? How do you know when it's time to accept and move on versus keep praying, keep struggling, keep hoping? How do you know? There's a prayer. has a lot of wisdom in it. It's prayed all over in groups all over the world. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And I think there's a key in that. God says to anyone who lacks wisdom, ask God, and he will give you wisdom. As you ask God, God, I need wisdom in this circumstance. How do you know? Because you read some scriptures like things Jesus says. Knock. And the door will be opened to you. Seek, and you will find. Ask, and it will be given to you. And in the, in the Greek, the tense is actually knock and keep on knocking. Just keep pounding on that door, right? Seek, keep seeking. Don't stop seeking. Ask, keep asking. Jesus goes on. He'll tell a story about this lady that just keeps pestering this judge, pounding on the door until finally he's like, okay, have your justice. He says, you know, basically the idea is if an unrighteous judge is like that, how much is a good father going to do? So how do you know when you're like, God, you say to be faithful in prayer. I've, there's all sorts of examples through history of people that persevered in prayer, right? They persevered and they saw God do amazing things. There's this cool story 
about Honi, the circle maker. He's a rabbi that lives, I think it was around 100 years or so before Jesus. And there was a period of drought. And this guy, he's so impetuous, he, he's, they're all praying. And he goes outside of the city and he draws a giant circle in the sand and he sits in that circle and he cries out to God and goes, God, I'm not going to leave this circle till you send rain. And I think the story goes, um, a little cloud comes and like sprinkles a little. He's like, that's not good enough. I want real rain. And it starts pouring. <laughs> that's, the, that's the historical um, legend of Honey, the circle maker. And, and you can't read through the Bible without realizing that God responds to perseverance in prayer. So how do you know when it's time to accept and move on? Well, I would say when it comes to praying for others to meet Jesus, you never, ever give up. My little girl, she's, she's eight now, but when she was five or six, um, her great-grandma was approaching the end of her life. And that little girl, she just kept praying for Grandma Shirley. Just almost, every day she would pray for Grandma to come to know Jesus. And about two weeks, as, as Grandma is getting ready to die, about two weeks before she dies, she accepted Jesus. <laughs> now that little my girl has her sights set on somebody else in the family, so watch out. <laughs> watch out. When do you stop praying for people to find Jesus and to come into relationship with them? Not as long as they're alive. You keep praying, you keep trusting, you keep persevering. But there are times... When you're praying about a, a season of life or a circumstance in life or something, a hardship in life, and the answer is no. You know, sometimes God answers yes. We love that, don't we? Sometimes the answer is no. We don't tend to like that very much. Sometimes God answers not yet. And sometimes that's the hardest one. So you're telling me to wait? Ugh, who likes waiting? All right, we got one. <laughs> Liar. Just kidding. <laughs> but there's this time in seeking God um, where, where it's just, you know, you have a sense from the Holy Spirit that it's time to move on. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the guy we started with, he's praying and rejoicing and singing songs in prison. He has something, it's called the thorn in the flesh. Some kind of probably a spiritual thing that's manifesting in his life in a physical way as you read the, the text. And it's driving him crazy. He thinks this is hampering his ministry before God. It's making things hard and difficult. So for three sustained seasons, he prays diligently about this thing. And after the third season of prayer, so I think this is... In, Incredible. After the third season of prayer, God speaks to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, I am not, the answer is no. Took him a while. He had to keep praying about it. And then finally, it's like, sorry, the answer is no, but my grace is sufficient for you. Let me just ask, if you know anything about the life of Paul, was God's grace sufficient for him? Mm-hmm. Was he able to accomplish an incredible amount for Jesus? Perhaps more than any person in the history of the world. 
Incredible amount, right? He's, he's arguably the reason we're here today, worshiping God. God says, no. Does anybody think you have more faith than Paul? I had one last night, so we had conversation afterwards. <laughs> How do you know? Sometimes you just, God speaks to you. God speaks to you and you know. Sometimes it's wise people around you that God uses to speak to you. And as you're praying through that, you know, it's just that thing. Somebody wise that loves God comes along and says, I've been praying along with you and I really feel like, you know, it's time to move on in this situation. Sometimes you just get a peace, a profound sense of peace in a circumstance. Maybe it's something you've been, you've been striving for, you've been wanting it. I think this promotion is mine or I think this thing is mine and you've been working and then you, you face disappointment and in the midst of that disappointment, there's a sense of peace. But okay, I don't know why, but I, but I know it's okay, God. I remember I had a circumstance years and years ago where um, in, in, the, in the job we was, I was in, we had a new leadership come in and I just like saw it in my mind. Oh, this is the trajectory. I'm the next guy in line to do this thing, you know, for this next promotion. And I remember how hard it was when I realized that isn't happening. That's not going to happen. I'm not getting it. In fact, I have to go a whole different route altogether. And that was hard. But let me tell you, looking back years and years later, I see how the trajectory of my life and the, the things, even the, the significant disappointment in that season paved the way to where I am now doing this. And this is where God had me going. And if I had done that, chances are I wouldn't be here. Sometimes you get the luxury of knowing that five or ten years later. You go to go look back and go, oh, that's why. The relationship, your dating relationship blows up. You, you thought this was the one. And then five years later, you look back and you go, thank God. You patiently seek God. You do what's right. You wait on him. How do you know when it's time to move on? You abide in Jesus. He said, my sheep will hear my voice. He said, abide in me. You stay closely connected to the Holy Spirit and he will reveal to you when it's time to keep persevering in prayer and when you're facing a tough situation in your life or something you don't understand, when it's time just to say, okay, God, it's time to move on. Abide in me, he said. So first you're going to acknowledge. Then verse 17 and this, this bridge, remember, this is, the, this is the, where the song has been pointed. This is where God's bringing Habakkuk. This is where God's bringing the people of Israel. He says this in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no fruit, food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And just so you understand what he's saying here, because as we read these words in, um, in our modern times, we're like, oh, yeah, so, you know, the peaches froze out this year, which is if you're in the peach business, you actually get this, right? The rest of us were just like, that would have been a tasty peach. 
what he's saying is, so what they're saying, before the fig tree would grow figs, there'd be a blossom on there. And so what he's saying is there's not any figs on that tree, which was one of their staples of their diet, and there's not even any blossoms. In other words, today isn't looking good and tomorrow's not looking much better. Though today looks lousy and tomorrow, don't want to talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow's not looking any better. Though the whole system of everything we rely on for comfort and enjoyment and sustenance is taken away. That's that's, all the stuff. This is an agricultural society. No no sheep. What are you going to eat, right? No goat's milk. None of this. I mean, everything is taken away. The crops, the fields are producing no food. He's saying, though everything I've placed my security and my trust and my sustenance in is pulled away from me, yet I will rejoice. I will find joy in my Savior. What? How do you do that? How do you do that? See, the truth is, most of us, we can't wrap our heads around this. We've lived such comfortable lives, most of us, that we have a very hard time wrapping our minds around this. The severity of what he's saying. What gives you the ability to be joyful in spite of the circumstance? But he goes on. Into verse 19. So he says, I'll rejoice in my Savior. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. In other words, he is putting his full trust in God as his source, as his sustenance, as his strength. God, it's you. I can't do it on my own. I've come to the point of realizing that all of this, though you want me to work hard and you use that and that's the means that you know you use to provide, still ultimately you're my strength. Everything else can be taken away, but I still have you. Everything could be taken in an instant and yet I still have you. And because of that, he says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Or this is a little deer that would climb up on rocky ledges, you know, like bighorn sheep. Come down from the mesa and see these bighorn sheep up on the cliffs in these crazy spots. You're like, whoa, that's amazing. He's saying, you allow me to go through very tricky, dangerous things that I never thought I would have been able to make it through. But because I have you, because you're my strength, I can do it. I can do it. In the midst of the trial, I find joy, I find peace, and I can rise above. He enables me to tread on the heights. I'll rise above the circumstance. Why? Because the sovereign Lord is my strength. My trust is in you. My hope is in you. It's properly placed in you. Rejoice in the midst of hardship. Rejoice. You know who else can help us, I think, as we head towards closing today and understanding how do you rejoice in the midst of real hard times? I think the guy we started with, the Apostle Paul, the dude who was singing with open wounds in prison. I think maybe he could help us a little. In fact, he writes more about joy and rejoicing than just about anybody 
in the New Testament, probably the most. Here's what he writes in Philippians. We preached through this book, um, I don't know, four or five years ago. And I was amazed how many times he talks about joy and rejoicing. And remember, he's writing this book from prison. In chains. These are called the prison letters. He writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. And from that he goes on to say, Hey, don't be anxious about anything. How many of you would wish that that was true in your life? I wish I saw more of that in my life. Too many times I see anxiety and stress and fear. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And you want to know how you have peace in the midst of chaos? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do you rejoice? And if you want to understand rejoicing, it's different than just feeling happy. Feeling happy is very much related to the circumstance you're in. And it goes up and down and up and down. Rejoice is a joy you choose. It's something you choose to do in spite of your circumstance. And it's all about where the source of your joy is found. How do you rejoice? Because the Lord is near. He understands God is with me. God is with me. Jesus is coming again. God is with me. He dwells in me. I have mercy. I have grace in my time of need. He promises that. How do you rejoice? How do you choose to rejoice in tough circumstances? You got to know God is near. You got to really have that sink down into your heart that he's with you. He promises, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Here's another thing he writes that I think is a key for rejoicing. He writes this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. This is one of the very last letters he writes to my namesake, Timothy, a pastor he's trained and sent out. He says, I'm about done. I know it. He knows. He has a sense whether God told him or or whatever because he's about ready to get his head chopped off in Rome. He, He just has a sense. My race is run. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What life is all about, he says, I've, I've lived it. The things that are going to last, I've lived that way. I've lived my life into those things. Verse 8, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. How do, you, how, do you, how do you rejoice in spite of tough circumstances in life? How do you choose to have joy in that circumstance? Not just a shallow happiness, but a deep joy in, that's placed in God. I, I rejoice in you. I have you, God. How? Well, you realize that this life is but a snap in the scope of eternity. That there is... That, a person who understands, like Habakkuk, 
As he says, God will prevail. Wickedness is not the final word. A person who believes that there's a God who makes all things right in the end is a person who can rejoice. A person who, who understands that eternity is, is a whole lot longer than today can rejoice. A person that understands, like Habakkuk says earlier, that the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's coming a time, a glorious future, new heavens, new earth. You can rejoice. Why? Because our momentary trials have a lot less significance when you realize this, don't they? See, Paul had this perspective. How can you sing in prison? Because you have this perspective. How can you count suffering as actually joy? <laughs> it's hard for us because you have this perspective. If you can do that, you will be, like Habakkuk says, a righteous person who lives by faith. The just will live by faith. You'll trust God and take the next faithful step. He's called you to. And finally, Paul understood that nothing can take God away from him. The relationship, the 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 relationship with Jesus, his security in Jesus. There's nothing, no one that can snatch that away. Romans chapter 8. And we always read the, the last couple of verses of this. We never, usually never read the verses leading up to it. Here's what he says. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword these are all things he's facing in real time. How many want to sign up? No thanks. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet, check this out. This is his perspective. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do you rejoice in the midst of hardship? You realize you have him and nothing can take that away. You have him eternally, his kingdom. Jesus calls it the pearl of great price, the treasure that was worth so much you sold everything else and ran after it. If you haven't, you need to do that. Because if you don't have that perspective, when trials hit, guess what? It's just going to level you in your faith. But if you can anchor your heart on this, that, that you are my treasure, God, everything else could be taken away in an instant. Nothing Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can separate me from, from the eternity you've promised. That'll give you a perspective. That'll get you through anything. Would you stand? And if you're in the room or joining us online and you've never made Jesus, you've never put your faith fully in him, I just want to encourage you. There's no magic words. I want to encourage you to call out to him. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
today, would you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you can't make it to God on your own, ask for his forgiveness, and then commit your life to following him. Say, I want to turn from a life that's not going towards you or following you, and I want to follow you. And whether you're in the room or online, I hope you'll do that here as we close today. Now let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for for my friends. Lord, would you show each one exactly how this applies, Lord? And for some that just they haven't lived life long enough yet to know some of these seasons, would you plant these truths in their heart? And most of all, would you plant this reality that you are with them, that you love them, and that this would give them the, um, the anchor point that will bring them through anything they encounter in this life, Lord. Anchor us in your truth, the truth of your love, of your grace, of your mercy, and give us the ability to be a people full of joy, not phony joy, but genuine joy in you, Lord, in spite of what the world throws at us. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.